welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey Simon, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? Oh, very well, Danny. Good to good to be here. Awesome, awesome. So Simon, I guess before we even get into the, the um, nitty-gritty questions, I guess yep. the first thing I'd do is I ask my guest to pick four numbers, if you could, from one to a hundred. Okay, I'll pick 94. Okay. I will pick 13. Yep. I'll pick 69. Okay. And it was four numbers, was it? Um, yep. And I will pick uh, two. Awesome. We will come back to them a little bit later on. So usually what, what tends to happen, Sam, is I tend to ask my guests a kind of um, a log line to summarise who they are. Yep. Um, do, you, okay. do you remember what yours was? Um, so full disclosure, I found this really quite hard, but um, I, I'm going to go with a, a man who is endlessly baffled by the strange decisions that organisations make with regard to their people, but still chooses to try and help them anyway. Okay. Okay, so we we can um, we can definitely get into that in just a sec. Yeah, but I guess before we, before we get into it, when you was in school, Simon, and the teacher used to come up to you and say, "Simon, what is it you want to be when you grow up?" Can you remember what you would used to say to the teacher? I wanted to be a copper for a while. Um, I then that was like early stage. Like I was like, "What did you want to be?" I'd want to be a policeman. Um, and then I sort of flitted around with various other things. I thought I wanted to be go and join the army, but specifically again wanted to join the um, the military police bit of the army. Um, that didn't, you know, that was something else. And then then I went through a period of actually not knowing what I wanted to do at all. Um, but let's stick with my first answer, which is I think I wanted to be a copper. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So, I mean, you know, Simon, we, we know each other. We've worked with each other a little bit in the yeah, past. But yeah. but maybe from a, from a guest who don't know who Simon is, maybe you could give us a bit, uh-huh. of, a, bit of a whistle-stop tour kind of from where you've come from right through to where you are right now. Okay, in terms of my career. So um, so I, I left um, – I'll, I'll start back at university because that is sort of prescient, although a tad dull. But I did a philosophy degree, and whilst that taught me lots of things, what it didn't do was give me any idea about how I wanted to apply myself in the real world, um, which is an interesting discussion point in and of itself. Um, but then I I sort of goofed around a bit after university working in working in shops, but always with a sort of uh, angle towards the people side of things, um, specifically doing kind of training and and induction for new people at uh, Marks and, local Marks and Spencers where I lived at the time. Um, and then I, I moved to London to follow a girl and worry about the job later, but I sort of fell into a, a learning and development job, learning and development administration job for um, the Cabinet Office, part of the part of UK central government, um, if you like, the sort of HQ of the civil service. And I spent a lot of time working my way up through the ranks of learning development and HR. And at the time, I I embarked on that um, apparently totally necessary part of uh, of one's HR and learning development uh, career, which is my CIPD. And I did a master's. Um, and then I got to a point in the civil service where I was like, actually, I, I don't want to progress within the civil service generally, I want to start specialising in more work that's focused around people and people change and some of the 
sort of cool stuff you see when organizations try and do things differently. Um, and an opportunity came to me, and this was nigh on 12 years ago, with an organization called PA Consulting. Um, and I've been there 12 years. It's a pretty amazing company. It's got, got its ups and downs. But um, during that time, I've probably worked on average six different clients a year over 12 years. And math is never my strong suit, but that's a huge amount of different jobs over the time I've been there. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work UK, overseas, and um, both both in the public sector and the private sector, and a whole range of different organisations. Um, I'm currently up in um, in Cumbria, working with Sellafield, the big nuclear power station that is on a sort of hundred year closure pro- project, um, which is a, a fascinating people and development challenge, and I'm really enjoying it. So that's me. Wow. That answer your question. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I guess I, I kind of, um, yeah, I mean, obviously given how much you can talk about, you know, clients and whatnot, but yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of the Sellafield project and, and kind of what what you kind of so, do. So Sellafield is a uh, fascinating organisation. Um, and here's a fun, and I say fun, advisedly fact that I learned today. Um so apparently, Sellafield stores 140 tons of plutonium. Uh, it stores it safely and things like that. But if you took that 140 tons and divided it amongst every single person on Earth, they'd probably all still die. That's how powerful weapons-grade plutonium is. And that is the, fast, that is the challenge that Sellafield is trying to deal with. How do we, how do we decommission this stuff safely? Um, it's probably one of the UK's most challenging problems if we're honest and it's fascinating and the work I'm doing there is because they're moving from being a power station and reprocessing nuclear waste to decommissioning to essentially closing the thing down safely um, they need to change the way they approach performance the way they approach um, uh, the people management the, the, the skills challenge everything and, and what we're the, what I'm there trying to help them with is tr- try and get them a little better having those really important conversations between managers and teams around performance and ultimately sort of nudge the culture in the in the direction that it needs to be which is about uh, people holding each other to account more um, people having richer conversations about development um, and and people looking for ways to both do the work but also improve the work so ostensibly it's a kind of performance management type project but in my eyes is is part of the big culture change they're trying to affect and what makes it even more fascinating is uh, Sellafield is West Cumbria's biggest employer I think so it's got a really big social impact which again puts a very interesting spin on this particular bit of work that I'm involved in. Wow okay I mean that sounds pr- pr- pretty awesome but I guess how how we how you know when it kind of comes to say the mindset and what's what's in there right now and, and changing that and looking yeah. at kind of i mean I, i'm just guessing because i don't know the client but i guess yeah. there's there's kind of this whole old legacy of way of doing things and you know yeah yeah you're absolutely right like like a lot of um, big blue collar highly unionized organizations there are and 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 to be frank the sort of place where um, you've got generations 
in the workforce, families that will live and work locally, that there are certain entrenched views and ways of doing things. Um, some brilliant, some you scratch your head and go, why do you do it like that? And some, frankly, obstructive. But um, my, my contention and the kind of contention that we're, we're going in with, with the team is that you change mindsets one sort of one conversation at a time and you have to create the conditions where people can have conversations and give them some sort of tools and guide rails within which to have this conversation that start to change the language that gets used in the place and that's when that's when you sort of notice the mindset shifts when the language changes that's my contention it's a bit of a hypothesis because it's a difficult one to see all the way through especially in my line of work but that that's kind of my view one conversation at a time and if you can create the conditions where people are having more meaningful much richer conversations about what that both what they're doing but also how they're doing it and how it might be done differently in an in a in an environment that is not characterized by fear or or kind of punishment um that's when things that's when great things start to happen and that's when you unlock the latent potential in people who might otherwise have sat there and go, oh, I'll just do my job or I'm doing it because that's the way I got told to do it. That there's something really powerful there that if you can do it right, I think is a real secret source. Yeah. yeah. It sounds it sounds like an awesome challenge, to be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's not that easy, but no. it, is, it, is, it is intellectually, it's really stimulating. Really stimulating. Which kind of comes down to kind of what it is you want in your role, right? You kind of don't want this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of dulcet tone of just standard day to day you want something what is is challenging for sure and, uh, yeah and like I, I totally agree and and i've had my i've had my fair share of sort of demanding we're not stretching roles or even worse not demanding and not stretching it's kind of like the worst place to be <laughs> and then your mind mind goes all over the place so you know um I, I this is this has it has its other challenges because cumbria west cumbria is bloody miles from anywhere but um you know and i've got a little one at home and and it's not really commutable so it it, it has its downsides but from like i say from that sort of pure play intellectual challenge it's brilliant and it's right in the heart of what excites me around actually how can you make the right decisions how can you get an organization to make those types of decisions that get the best out of people okay that's why it's interesting awesome so i guess i guess kind of moving and i'll probably dip in a little bit later on a a little bit more around kind of what other stuff you're up to but i guess i'm going to just um say some random words and i want you to tell me the first thing what comes to mind oh like mallets mallets or word association yeah yeah it it could be you it could be that or it could just be your initial thought what just comes to mind um so the first one is digital learning Overhyped. Okay. Change management. Overhyped. Organisational design. Really, really important. Okay. And two more. Digital transformation. Uh, (laughs) uh, A buzzword. Okay. And the last one is leadership. Underinvested in everywhere that I go. Awesome. Okay, and I, I kind of want to jump into them in just a sec, but yeah, I guess going back to your 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 tagline, 
So yeah, maybe walk us through kind of your your tagline and why you came up with that one. Do you know what, Danny? That was such a hard thing for me to to try and I found, I genuinely found it really hard to come up with it. But what one of the brilliant things about my job that I in times when I'm like, right, I've had enough of this place that I sort of fall back on and, and it reminds me is I, I'm paid to go into organisations, sort of scratch under the surface, look around at what's going on and then thinking, oh, maybe there's another way of doing this. Um, and if I wasn't baffled by the, some of the decisions I see organisations make, I don't think I would be as motivated to go and sort of try and change them because sometimes these decisions get made for good reasons sometimes they're historical reasons sometimes it's just strange you see decisions made that sort of you know around policy or process that just shut people down rather than open them up um so i kind of reflected on on my career and some of the assignments i've been in and some of the ones that i've enjoyed the most and they've been the ones where i have either you know, either with permission from the client or maybe against my better judgment um, and perhaps in a slightly career-limited way questioned or challenged some of the decisions that I've seen. But as a result, it's turned into a much richer experience professionally, but better for the people who are on the receiving end of it as well. So that, that's kind of where that came from. It's those those strange, and maybe it's a, I think it's kind of a, a steal a phrase you use a lot. It's those moments that suddenly make you think and go, huh, why is this happening? And then having the sort of backing myself to go and ask that question and then having a good conversation to explore it. And um, more and more, I think if people start questioning in a healthy way, I think organizations will unlock some of the potential that they have in them that they might have inadvertently suppressed. That's kind of my 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 that that's that's where my log line came from. I think it's really interesting. I, I think when kind of just listening to your log line, it's interesting about how you mentioned, you know, kind of doing it anyway, even I think on the back end of your log line, because it was quite a fair long log line, but the back end of it yeah. was kind of even though you, you see, you know, kind of the business map might not be there, it's kinda of like doing it anyway. And I think I think you see that a lot of times with in especially with consultancies, they, you know, they go in and be un, they kind of um get underneath of the problem and then sometimes the business doesn't like the fact that you've highlighted this 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 well uh-huh. this problem, if you like, this yeah, this problem challenge. Yeah. So how how do you get around that kind of, you know, I guess the business say they want this, you go in, um, you figure it out, you have the conversations and then I guess you present the findings and then actually be like, actually, we don't want this. Do you, do you see that a lot? Or? So hand on heart, and again, one of the many reasons I've stayed where I am, despite all the challenges that are often there, is the the integrity. I've always seen utmost integrity, and I have been on I have on occasion been part of uh, project teams where we've put something down based on independent research analysis and the reaction has been like we've just been sick on their plate like we don't we did we didn't want that we didn't want this answer you know what the hell do you think you're doing and on one memorable occasion it was like right thanks very much bills in the post <laughs> we won't be darkening your door again you know and and that was the right thing to do but you do have that that 
interesting balance because we're not like an auditor where you you know you pay you you're sort of um it's under statute it's it's legal to go in and sort of scratch around and present stuff back you often get paid to go and look at something but then you know do you want to do you want to sort of bite the hand that's feeding you it's a difficult one but um with me and and everything i've seen it's always been doing the right thing right uh and this you know demonstrating what we found this is what it is you might not like the answer but this is what we're showing you and you paid us to come and tell us something that you you're not in a position to see or you don't want to see um so you do get those uncomfortable situations and again it's one of those weird things that makes the job quite interesting and quite rewarding when it's done in the right way mm. I can I can imagine it. It's, I guess it's kind of that thing of as long as as long as you're, you know, as long as as you can sleep at night knowing that you've been honest and transparent and, you know, while there might be that internal politics of, they're not yeah. going to want to see this. It's it's like I say it comes down to that thing of, well, actually you have your own values and you know I guess uh-huh. being uh-huh. honest and transparent uh-huh. is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess just moving away from kind of business as such and, and kind of getting a little yes. getting to know a little bit about you so i think when we go into into kind of you know we're, we're told now via social media and, and when we go for jobs and and whatnot you know we've got a, we've got to show our best self and kind of you uh, know you see this in yeah. interviews about kind of oh i did xyz and it's all about kind of showboating to a little bit but i think i think there's there's actually more value to ask someone actually time of the time your failure so if i was to ask you simon kind of what would your failure CV or failure resume look like? My, yeah, okay. Um, long. Okay. <laughs> long and glorious. Um, I have, I have, uh, I remember once when I was in, uh, when I was in the cabinet office before I joined, um, before I joined my current firm, I was working on quite a big internal restructure and I, waded into a debate about budget uh, and whether or not we were going to be getting the right sort of funding from the treasury it's quite a long boring story but the the lesson was it was the first time that i i sort of put my head above the parapet well no i didn't i didn't put my head above the parapet i went wading straight into um an area where i had neither the knowledge experience uh, skills gravitas or uh, <laughs> reason to be part of this discussion, and never have I been sort of um, shot down with quite such. Um, it was all done very sort of politely and civilly via email, but it was left in no uncertain terms. Do not come into this discussion because you're not. Part, you shouldn't be part of it. And they were right. I was just. I'd just been promoted, and I was sort of showing off and pretending to be more um more influential than i really was so that was a very valuable lesson in in organizational politics and navigating navigating a hierarchy that was a really interesting one um i had an experience at uh one of my clients where again this was a classic case of you know not ripping a band-aid off when i should have basically i didn't like the client the client didn't like me we didn't get on I resented spending any time with him. I don't think he respected me um, professionally, intellectually. Uh, I think he 
um, probably had a point in terms of I was operating in a sphere where I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, and but as a result, I withdrew. I withdrew and I withdrew and I, and I found it. I found loads of other stuff to keep me busy because I was working as part of a big account. <laughs> but in the end, the client said to the big boss, this guy is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he didn't just say it to me, put it in sort of formal written note. Um, so there was no choice but to pull me off that project and send me back to head office with my tail between my legs. Um, but the lesson there was uh, the the phrase that stuck with me. And the, the big I remember the big boss sitting me down at the time. He said, look, with these with this particular client you need to engage early and often don't sit there do all your work and then present it to them as the finished article because if they don't don't like it they'll they'll let you know and then they won't pay the bill what you need to do is sort of share your thinking early and get feedback and learn as you go so that was a really valuable lesson um, about engaging early and often i think um i've had other i've had some failures in the not too recent part sorry in the recent past where i've corpsed in front of um because i as part of my role is to do some sort of facilitation and, and leadership development type work so the behavioral side of, of development uh, and i've corpsed in front of despite knowing all the content and everything i've just corpsed on stage and it's been bloody awful for for me and for for, for for my co-facilitators where you just kind of freeze and stop and, and that's horrendous and awful but i've learned to get over it pretty quickly um i i can count well i think about there are a number of times where i've had because i tend to because of the way our firm operates i tend to work as part of account teams like bigger bigger cross functional teams and there are times when I've not always invested the time I should in relationships with the right people, both from my firm, but also from the clients. And, and that's made my life um, harder than it should be. Um, and some of my other failures are around times I've said yes to my work when I should have said no for the benefit of my family and personal life. Uh, and those are probably those are probably the failures that hurt the most because you can't get that back yeah yeah that's that's those are that's probably the biggest that's the the sort of glowing one and and i is it a failure or is it just the wrong decision i who knows right but those are the ones that really stick out yeah and it, and i guess some are, you know i don't i don't necessarily think they're failures i think it is a right wrong decision maybe but i think you know hindsight is a beautiful thing as well right you know yeah. in that moment you know, it probably seemed like the right thing to do. Um, yep. But yeah, I think, um, I think it's it's more hindsight rather than kind of failure. But I guess you know, yeah. it, and, and I think it's really important that we talk about failures because absolutely, because absolutely. you know, to, to be honest, they're, they're the best opportunities of learning. And obviously, I know you personally outside of this podcast, and I know you know you've got bags full of like success. But actually, I want to jump into what's been the biggest personal success for you the most recent one and this can be personal so, professional whatever it's um, I, <laughs> my flippant answer is i'm i'm 12 months and 15 days into being a father 
and it, everything's still working <laughs> which um you know i i look at my little one and uh, it just amazes me that well she's just amazing um that that's a slightly flippant answer um i i i think i've uh, biggest personal success i i find this quite hard because i'm i'm naturally not that good at promoting particular things that i've done i mean i can think about some feelings that i've you know uh i'm, I'm going to sort of prevaricate so i can land on a better answer but um there are some teams i've worked with like one particular client i work with um where a member of the client team came up to me and they said to me like that because of the work you're doing we're better at what we do and our people are safer and that was a really great thing to hear you know and that was a that was a tiny little bit of work i did for a, a transport company and and to something like that really sort of resonated that our, we're better and our people are safer that was a nice thing to hear um because that goes back to my kind of the, my logline point i did something i sort of tried to help unlock a decision that had been made and um so yeah that that was a that was a one particular professional success um and, and and you know i think you mentioned kind of you know the new bambino i think that yeah. is a massive success right you know it's yeah. it's new it's 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 a very big learning curve i should imagine um oh, you're not kidding yeah yeah so i think i think I think I think you've got two good ones there to be honest, Simon. I think yeah. mm-hmm. I think they're both you know, we're both awesome for that. But I guess yeah. kind of one of the things I wanna jump into is and it's more along the lines <coughs> of um a gift. And if I was to ask you to what you know, if you used to give a gift of a book to five people, what book would you give? And this could be maybe a book what you think everybody should read or one that's personally changed you and your perspective mm-hmm. on things. Mm-hmm. You've had it before. I think you've had it before on this, but I'll say again: something that totally changed my outlook on almost every everything and the way I approach the problems is the Checklist Manifesto. Okay. Um, I think um, <clears throat> you've got this very eminent surgeon who did some research that looked at how can you get what can you do to stop organizations because organizations and institutions develop a funny way of thinking and as a result the people that within them that are not daft you know that have brains somehow don't start using them in the right way so what can you do and this idea of having a checklist or if you like um guide rails for expertise just totally um it's kind of blew my mind in terms of actually it's something so simple and elegant that you can give it to people doing some of the most complex sensitive difficult surgery to the people who are doing really kind of dangerous things with nuclear material to people who are trying to you know remember how to learn from the very beginning how to wire a plug you can deploy this thing because it gets you thinking in the right way um that that book just really really um (laughs) really blew my mind um and the other element to it was the the learning piece and this idea about actually we there are things we can do 
to to position ourselves best for learning and and the way we do that is we we have checklists and we communicate and we we're clear on who does what and how and 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 it was just it just felt so simple it was almost um it amazed me that not more people do it because when you say checklist people are like, oh, boring checklist but actually it's such a powerful tool um so that's quite a, a long-winded way of extolling the virtues of the book but I cannot recommend the Checklist Manifesto by Dr. Atul Gawande highly enough. So I think so. Checklist Manifesto is an awesome book. It's on. So I have one set shelf on my bookshelf, which is for books which change me or change my ideas on mm. things. And then mm-hmm. Checklist is definitely on there. I think you know fundamentally it talks about kind of you know in in the, in the surgery environment. But I think one of the biggest things which he talks about was I think it was Bowen's checklist and how we use it for the aviation and stuff it's just yeah it it literally is sometimes you know innovation is simply just making things more simpler right it's kind of and a checklist you can't really get much simpler than that no and and i think there's a there's a nice bit in that book where he talks about different types of checklists so you've got the the checklists where they're they're sort of mental checklists and there's ones that are designed that i think he calls them confirm do or confirm act yeah it's a type of checklist where I'd say something and you would go yes, and then I'd say something and you'd go yeah. So they're designed for sort of for teams or couples to use. Um, I just it was this it was just the simplicity of it that really really inspired me, um, and I think its ability to make a difference to organisations as well. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So I just want to take you back to your childhood, and I want to ask you this really simple question: Can you remember the first time you ever got in trouble? And and what 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 did you do? If you can share um, it. <laughs> so so uh, one of the first times I got in real trouble uh, is uh, my we lived in Saudi Arabia at the time. My my father was in the army, and we lived in a trailer park just outside of Riyadh. So this is early eighties. Um, I'll let you guess the age from there. And it is literally a trailer park in the desert. My dad um, is an engineer, and he. Uh, he, he had a modeling drawer and he had stuff and I somehow managed to get hold of some glue and I squeezed and squeezed this glue and I managed to glue my eyelids together um, and they, you know they're miles away from any particular support so the only thing they did is they dunked me up and down in a pool for three hours <laughs> until my eye until the glue dissolved so that was uh, that was my that was the first real time. Now, now I'm I, I'm I'm regaling that as if I remember it. I clearly don't, but my 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 mum and dad tell it quite often. Uh, so that was that was one bit. Again, in Saudi Arabia, I got my head stuck in fencing at an air at an airport, and um, my dad had to try and ask the Saudi police to helpfully come and cut the gates. And no, I wasn't trying to uh, run into the uh, into the airbase and take photos of their planes so that's two examples <laughs> <laughs> i think i think one of the common things when you look at kind of when we're in trouble the thing that goes hand in hand with trouble 90 percent of the time is curiosity oh yeah how far can i push <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's yeah, crazy it's that type of thing isn't it but okay so yeah, kind of and... let's let's kind of go away from childhood and, and let's get into the learning so mm-hmm. you know, I know kind of leadership is quite is, is is important to you, and we talked about kind of you know when I asked you at the beginning, kind of 
what your take was it and you kind of said undervalued and pretty much or mm-hmm. underinvested i think it was so yeah maybe yeah. maybe, maybe talk about that and maybe talk about kind of why it isn't isn't in them speak why it is um underinvested and, and kind of where you think the future of leadership is going so in my head um and i think often i'm going to give you a stream of consciousness that might might um may or may not um offend offend some people be slightly controversial but i think the challenge is um i think all too often leadership development is seen as one a nice thing to have or to something that involves um off-sites conferences um you know booze nice food you know fun good experiences um and that is, and they are expensive. And you know, there are other eminent people who've been on this uh, podcast who who also have views about them. That, that you know, people take a lot from them. Whether they take good things from them or not is different. Um, and the other thing is, I, I don't think leadership development at the moment goes far enough because I don't think it really is giving people, putting people in the type of environment that they need to be in to 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 develop i think i just think it's um it's it's too it's focused narrowly um i've i've i and and it's it still appears to be the domain of it's in the back office as well if i'm honest it's sort of i don't see enough interest in it until it's too late it's like oh we need to develop our leaders because we've got a bit of a gap between the folk doing it now and those not necessarily the rank below, but two ranks below them. Like, well, have you invested? Have you given them some experiences? Have you helped them, you know, see what it's going to be like, given them a different view of the world? No, because it's not urgent. It's one of those things, I think, again, I'm going to use a horrible cliche. Um, it's, it's leadership development, I think, is seen as important, but not urgent. Okay. So as a as a result, it perhaps doesn't get the attention it needs. So, I think I struggle with leadership, and you know, we've I think we've spoken in the group and stuff about this back and forth, and uh. you know, part of me, one part of me says, kind of with, with regards to leadership, leadership's a great it's a great thing to have, but usually poorly designed and not designed from the from the from the future leaders' point of view of the people who are in there. Yeah, it's yeah. usually designed yeah, yeah. from the yeah. top down rather than the actual bottom up if you like. And then I guess the other side of me thinks with leadership is a lot of times the people who are in leadership necessarily don't even want to be leaders. So So, so yeah. Go for it. Go on, sorry then. I, I think um I, I think it's interesting because um you get leaders by default or you get leaders who are leaders but not in a position of leadership which i think is quite interesting how do organizations deal with them you know those people are incredibly influential be it through tenure through the power of their network or you know to be really machiavellian because they've got a load of dirt on people they 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 can exercise sort of leadership in the in the 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 not so positive (laughs) sense but but i think your point about um you know you get the classic thing is you've got like the technical expert who is really good at what they do. They're a bit of a geek, 
they are, um, you know, they're amazing. And then suddenly they have to become a leader. And they're like, I don't want to be like a leader. I want to use my screwdriver and play with my, you know, play with my keyboard or whatever it is, right? I want to build stuff. I don't want to deal with the vagaries of, um, you know, because the challenge of leadership is all about dealing with people. And people are, as you know, they're spiky, they're difficult, they're lovely, they're emotional, they're challenging, they're, they're everything other than predictable and rational, which makes them really hard to deal with. So if you're used to dealing, if what has made you successful in the past has been dealing with something that is a bit more tangible, a bit more finite, yes, it might be difficult and intricate and complicated, but it's perhaps a bit more reliable in the way you interact with it, to suddenly having to step up and deal with a load of people in your organization. And then Christ, if you're in a sort of, let's say, a, an organization like Highways England or somewhere like that, where it's it's not government owned, but it's incredibly heavily influenced by government you've got to deal with local you've got to deal with the interests of local politics as well and suddenly you've got to deal with all of that but actually you grew up wanting to be a civil engineer and you're a bloody good civil engineer no one teaches you or supports you in terms of how you have to do that really complex stakeholder engagement and that that's a really tough place to be for some people and is it any wonder that they feel a bit exposed when when the sort of employee survey results coming back saying oh we don't have faith in our leadership well, funnily enough, if you haven't given these people the skills and tools they need to be able to discharge their leadership responsibilities, you're going to get those bad results. And and that's why I think it's really telling when you get people who perhaps don't don't want to be a leader. Why is it they don't want to be a leader? Is it because they don't or because they don't feel they've had the tools and the investment in order to make them successful? They don't want us to turn up to do a shit job at work, do they? Um, that's right. I, I'm, I'm ranting again, but that, that's kind of the way I see some of the problem. The challenges with leadership development is you have you have people who pursue, you know, they get their way up the organisation, or they're dragged, they're, they're sort of brought up through the organisation, and suddenly all the support and 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 sort of cheerleading that they had to get them up to a certain level is gone. So, my own now <laughs> so it's a tough place to be so so i kind of so so what i think a lot of times what i see with these leaderships is they see this leadership program as a one and done like you say it's kind oh, yeah, of yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. it's a maybe it's a week a month whatever a couple of months program and then boom you're a leader whoop whoop go for it kind of and then we don't really do much development with them at, at the end after three months there's no extended period there's no extension on that it's just a Okay, you're in your role now. Can you know fill your boots? So, so where do, where do you see? I mean, maybe maybe it's in a leadership program what you've worked on, or maybe it's yeah. one what you've kind of you know what you've actually where you've actually been through that process. But what yeah. what key leaderships programs have you seen? What stand out? Kind of what stand out from what you know what you just dis- just described. So I think that the most successful ones that I've seen and sort of been part of have involved um, they've involved a number of they've involved a number of things, right? One is definitely that experience piece. Um, you know, there is something there that gets people away from the daily grind that does something to challenge their thinking. Right? That, that I think that that's a really important part, and that can be as simple as I don't know, getting to know each other a bit better or 
um, you know, doing, I mean, God, some some corny team bonding thing, or it could be something a bit more meaningful. Um, it could be going collectively to listen to an expert speaker or going and saying, watching a paramedic crew operate or a chef's brigade to get some kind of insight into how a team should work. Yeah, that, that's quite a cool experience. So you've got that sort of part of it. Um, I think there will be there's element there's other elements of external insight that come into it so you know some people are voracious readers some aren't but there, there should be a kind of little box of stuff that people can <coughs> can dip into and out of to help them think about their role um there's an element of um helping people you know, making people care about this. So why is this important? So it has a link to what they're doing and their role. Um, there is the best programs I've seen have coaching baked into them and usually external coaching. Um, you know, coaching is a real skill. And as a result, it commands, you know, good coaches command a premium. But I think they, they, they pay for themselves, you know, tenfold if they're done well. Um, I think leadership programs build a sense of community uh, and I use that word deliberately so it's not just a leadership team it's more of a leadership community that are more effective together than they are necessarily individually and so that there's investment in that um, and the really good ones have um, experiences that stretch people to to the point uh, what was the phrase that um, I've heard used? Engineered failure. So they make people fail. Yeah. So they can really experience failure and learn from it. Um, and 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 that's you know that's that that's all of those. If uh, if I'm a consultant, design something that's in that relatively hashtag. Um, either from a kind of rates point of view, but even if you're asked ask your team internally to do that, that quite a lot of brain power and time investment to get that sort of thing right. So it's a, it's a you know, that's why that's kind of platinum level leadership about I think you've got a really good, you've got something that will make a difference. Oh, obvious bit that I kind of missed out the people who commission this type of work need to care about it. So if you're doing it, if this is for the successors to the board, the board needs to be, they need to care about it. They need to be involved. They need to visibly be engaged in the design, the delivery and all elements of it. Otherwise, I don't think there's any point of doing it. It's interesting you mentioned engineered failure. So I was working with, mm. um, shout out to Sam Neverwood in the group. Um, he asked me to kind of go and help out yep. with with something. Um, and it was me. It, basically, I was designing an experience for for him, and uh -huh. and literally that's uh -huh. that's exactly what I did. I built in this engineer failure right from the start, and there was no way they could succeed. And it was watching how how the yeah. team would engage with that, and how they would, and yeah. and actually, where does the blame culture come from? Kind of when it oh, yeah, absolutely. So so I guess you you've got this kind of hierarchy kind of taken thing. So what so you know. One of the things which is interesting to look at is these all new ideas of doing things. And, and one of the biggest things at the moment is this, well, not biggest, but one of the things we hear a lot about is this going teal. Have you come across that, Simon? Uh, 
No, go on, this sounds interesting. Um, it's basically not. It's it's basically the take on it is is um going teal is basically um you know organisations who kind of operate a bit more um effectively. So kind of rather than having um like leaders and, and managers in there, it's basically self management. Um, so oh, say, okay. So like holocracy sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. About. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. I know what you mean. So, so what's your take on that? Because you've got you, you know, at one end you've got these big, these big, you know, orgs which kind of have this this really deep hierarchy, and then you've got the opposite end of something like you know, going teal or whatever, kind of doing this differently. Where, where do you see kind of org? You know, where, where do you think the future of orgs are going? So, I think it's important to, and this is going to sound really dorky and geeky, and forgive me. Um, I think it's important to delineate structure from um, good governance and decision making uh, because you can have the most amazing flat free structure you like if people can't make decisions nothing will get done or if the right sort of decision making forums aren't in place nothing will happen um, I think the days of big, long, massive hierarchies are starting to, to change. I think that that's all going away. Um, I, I, I think the, I mean, even in the big flat structures that you talk about, there's usually still a boss. There's usually someone who controls costs. There's someone who controls people spend. Um, you know, even you know the, the big Netflix story about self-management. There's still a reporting chain and authority. So these things don't go away in any kind of, um, collection of human beings trying to come together for an endeavor. There's there's usually some form of you get a natural kind of structure that falls out of that, right? Whether that's to do with the the inspiration nature of the founder or the 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 sort of forensic focus of the guy looking after the the money, that would naturally sort of spread a that would naturally set up a a, a, a structure. Um, I I. I do wonder sometimes if um, these, when people talk about these new ways of doing organization design, that ultimately what they are talking about are ways of unlocking people's in that people in that people in that organization's ability to get stuff done, as opposed to hindering it through bad structures. So I've done a very bad job of answering your question again it's a bit of a stream of consciousness but um i i think that there's not a perfect model but i think there's so many things to consider in terms of your organization design um that it is worth spending the time thinking about and remember that unless you've got good ways of getting decisions made and clarity around authority doesn't matter how you structure you're just still going to struggle to get stuff done well yeah it's an interesting one, and I think if I remember rightly, and this is going back to a while back when I kind of got going involved looking at this, I think if I'm right, when when someone goes kind of this going teal, kind of the decisions and and the powers kind of flow to individuals who kind of have an expertise in it or an interest or or maybe even yeah. just a, a willingness to kind of you know oversee a situation rather than the whole and and consistent. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's interesting. 
and I think it, it raises interesting questions around corporate responsibility and stuff like that. Because if you look at, I mean, there's 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 pages and pages of statute that give um, people within organisations various degrees of responsibility and statutory responsibility when it comes to financial conduct and that type of thing. If you think about that, like, and then, and as a result, they sort of say, yeah, I'm willing to be a chairman or a CEO or a COO. And as a result, I'm subject to these particular laws and therefore I can discharge these responsibilities and I can command this type of salary in the market. And that's quite a traditional way of looking at it. Um, and that, that, that kind of lends itself to decisions naturally flowing upwards. All the decisions flow upwards because people were like, oh, what's the boss going to say? Whereas your point about people putting themselves forward to be a decision maker means they're naturally accepting of um, the, all the other stuff that comes with an ability to make a decision, the sort of consequences and payoffs of getting it wrong. I think it's a fascinating kind of lens to look at who's, who will step up and put their hand up to take the decision and stand by it and be responsible or be accountable should things go south. That's yeah. a tough one. It's an interesting one. It's definitely interesting. Mm. And I think kind of, I kind of want to take it more kind of towards like an, a learning. So I think when when, uh-huh. you, when you look at kind of our... I will learn, let's call it landscape. But you've got one end of people yeah. who are all face to face. You've got one end who are all e-learning, and then somewhere in the middle, you've got yeah. you've got people like me, who's big on experience. You've got other people uh-huh. who's big on kind of just jobby, 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 jobby. And I think one of the questions which I've been thinking about recently is kind of where is L and D? Because if if L and D was a, a team, it would look like a bit of a dysfunctional team. I think well, well disjointed, I, I think like. <laughs> yeah, with the greatest respect to all of my friends and colleagues who work in L and D, you're going to have you're always going to have zealots around particular viewpoints because people care about it, right? And it's important. It means a lot to them. You, you, you know, you're going to have these big, big differences. Where, but the the challenge, and again, this is not a this is not a, a new challenge. Is um, how do you get it? How do you get the balance right between getting something right versus getting it right because it's pure and it's perfect versus getting it right for the particular environment that you're in. Um, and I think L&D is a wonderful case in this because where it goes will often be led by the sort of, I think it's really subject to the next big thing in a way that other, other disciplines are perhaps not. Um, and I don't know why that is. And there are other more eminent members of both this podcast and, and the group who, who have views on that. Um, I just, it, it's, it can be a bit magpie in terms of where it goes off the next shiny thing and, and stuff like that. So, I, you know, I don't think LMD is in a crisis. I think there was always a need, for, there will always be a need to help people do stuff, do stuff differently, do new stuff, do things in pursuit of, um, of, of, getting things better um i just think as a profession it's kind of right how do we make sure that we can stay relevant to our customer base but also how how can we push push such that that we still that it's attractive but it's not so kind of conceptual and 
and difficult to grasp that it turns people off. I don't know if that answers your question or if that's a long rambling stream of consciousness. No, yeah. no, I think I think it answers the question. I think it poses another question. I think thinking about kind of when you say, you know, how do we make people do stuff? I, I kind of come back to that, that 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 role of is it for L and D to do that? I mean, the 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 simple answer is yes. It is for indeed to kind of help people do stuff, but I think the the term of what 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 of what L and D is doing and and kind of I I was having a conversation the other day and I was kind of saying actually the the L and D team should really be remastered anyway I think now you know the L and D team what what if you look at a lot of orgs is kind of this very basic you kind of I can probably shape an L and D team. Going off where it was, it'll it'll be consist of a couple of designers, a couple of deliverers. You've probably got a learning partner in there, and you've got a manager. You've probably got an admin, a, a, a coordinator in there of some sort. But I kind of challenge the idea of we we talk about our people like L and D are the only function who really know him, and <laughs> and, and, and this is kind of me think talking out loud. But then I think well, actually, there's there's better there's better. Um, parts of the business who know our people better than L and D do, and and if that is the case, and we we talk about how we know our people, what value is L and D? So again, um, that sparked a thought. I was having a conversation today, and it's slightly off, slightly off tangent, but um, as I've as I've sat in both camps, I can I can speak a little bit for for both parties. I'm talking about our friends and colleagues who work in HR. Um, you know, that in itself is an interesting debate. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about, uh, you know, what what does the future operating model of HR look like? This is again one of these wonderful conceptual conversations that that, that you can have. Um, and we were talking about uh, the new. Um, operating model, the new design for any HR function based on employee journeys, not on functional specialisms. So it's not like business partner, casework, reward, blah, 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 blah. Learning, training, that it was not. It's like, what do employees do? Employees join a company. Well, they apply to a company. So who needs to be involved in that? Well, you need marketing, you need HR, you need corporate comms, you need that. So they, they turn up on day one. Who needs to be involved there? Well, there's security, facilities, uh, Again, more marketing. You know, there's a whole. It kind of flips the way we perhaps look to traditional functional models. And again, if you get get the kind of classic L and D function, if you've got a, the partner facing out, and then you've got the designers sort of doing, and then you might have some in-house deliverers, or you might commission it. Whereas actually, where does that fit in a way where you're designing your organisation differently? I think that's a really interesting challenge. Um, and again, something that, again, as any kind of corporate function, um, L&D needs to step up to. And because and, I, I don't think it goes away. I think it just it's about doing things differently and helping the organization deliver value. So so I, I agree. I think it's more about kind of, you know, the actually we should be shaping for that employee. We're talking kind of we're dipping into this kind of employee experience there and 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 yeah. what that looks like and have I've got a blog post on my phone which I haven't posted yet and it's talking about employee experience but there's a there's a company who kind of reached out to me to see if I, I wanted to go and work with them for a, a, a bit back and they're called iTech Media I'm not sure if you've heard of them and how I've not I've not 
they are they have a a, a people experience. Um, well, it's called the PEX, and it's basically people experience and how they're looking at HR is absolutely brilliant. It's so different, and they're not asking for HR people to lead up their people function, which is fascinating because you know traditionally it's oh you've got to have this HR background and they're all about kind of breaking this this conventional HR practices and then, and then so I think well if HR can do that you know I use this and I put I put the thing out on LinkedIn and I was kind of saying a service designer will be able to design a better onboarding experience because that's kind of what we do we look at every kind of most of the moving parts of an onboarding experience so yeah I just think if the HR function is up for kind of let's use the buzzword of disruption L and D is no different to that, and and yep. it's interesting to see. You know, we talk about this, the future skill sets of what people need, but I feel like there's this gap of well, yeah, they might need to know about you know being a a data scientist and this and that, but they also need to look at other industries and look at you know some of the stuff what's new to L and D at the moment has been happening in other industries for years. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's a scary yeah. situation. I think, don't get me wrong; it sounds like I'm beating up an LD, and I, I'm not. I love LD, and uh-huh. I never really shout about the cool things in LD because I like to pose these other questions. But it would it's a it's it's a touch worrying, I think, and 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 exciting at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's it's um, yeah, I, I I I I think the excitement point is well made, and actually. This point about staying relevant and sort of market forces, right? If if you're not if you're not supplying what people are demanding, you won't be able to supply anything anymore, right? So, <clears throat> how do you get the brains and the passion that exists in L and D at the moment and help it adapt to what's going on outside? That's a good challenge. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there is a hell of a lot of passion, amazing capability, people drawn to the profession because they love to see people grow they love to help people be better versions of themselves or, or, or do things differently or do things more safely or whatever it is um you know I'm the, <laughs> i think and with that comes a kind of responsibility and obligation to make sure that you're doing that in a way that is um is making that difference um so again as you say it's exciting and that little bit of worry is probably more like a little kind of poke to not forget <laughs> yeah <laughs> to stay relevant yeah yeah exactly exactly and i think it's 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 definitely it's definitely an interesting one to kind of watch and and mm. and just kind mm. of see how that kind of whole thing plays out you know i guess yeah it's, it's, it's a good yeah it's a good it's a good um bit of entertainment so i guess kind of moving away away and, okay and, and getting to know a little bit quickly a little bit more about you simon but um one of the things which, you know, when it comes to LinkedIn and, and, and Twitter mm. and whatever else, and we mm. talk about this kind of social presence, but if I was to ask you who, who which four, five people, let's do five because it's easier, what, who, which five people would you recommend everyone should follow on LinkedIn or Twitter? That's a good question. So um, there's a chap called Martin Bromley on um, Twitter and He's got a, a very tragic but very interesting story. His his wife his his wife died um, as a result of 
something going wrong in hospital, and he's now a, a leading campaigner uh, around um, around uh, hospital safety. And he uh, he's referenced in Matthew Syed's book Black Box Thinking. Which mm-hmm. I, if I hadn't said checklist manifesto, I would have said that. Um, but Martin Bromley is really good because he talks about some of the cool things you can do to to, to nudge um, thinking in the right way. So I think he's really he's really compelling on on Twitter. Um, I so that's one. How many did you ask for? Five. Yeah. Five. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> and and again, full disclosure, I'm a bit of a lurker and less of a sort of poster on on, on Twitter. Um, because I, I follow um, a number of chefs and things like that, because that's one of my other passions. So uh, I can sit here and recommend chefs, but uh, let me think about other people who who provoke and 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 sort of inspire. Um, I think, um, and again, this is going to sound like horrible uh, horrible suck up, but. Um, I've got a lot of time for for Nick Shackleton Jones's um, musings and, and and blogs that he puts out. I find them end, endlessly um, sort of entertaining and and thought provoking on on LinkedIn. So shout out to Nick. Um, I think who else would I recommend people follow? Um, wow. Uh, can I can I just park that and I'm going to make a note and think of three other people. So come back to me on that. Panel. Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, not not a problem, not a problem. So if I was to say to you, kind of, um, describe describe what you do, as if you was explaining it to a five year old, what would you say? Five year old. I knew. I thought you'd ask me this one. Um, so. I help people at my work try and do what they do better. Okay. Okay. How's that? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's, it's really good. Yeah. That, I think that's that's why I, I help people try and do what they need to do better. Okay. That's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I do. And I guess just kind of coming coming near to the end now. If if I was to say to you, okay, Simon, the world's going to end tomorrow, and you've got to leave a set of instructions to kind of jumpstart the next generation. What what would your four instructions be? Wow. So I don't know, so first one is a is a horrible, oft used cliche quote, but I think really important, and it's it's less a it's less is it instruction or is it a diktat? What is um, seek first to understand, and then be understood? That's probably the first one. Okay. Yeah. So that that's the first one. Um, the second one is don't be a dick. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I know that's provoked a lot of uh, a lot of uh, debate recently around whether that's a good corporate slogan, but I just think it's quite a good uh, driver of the behaviour. Um, I think uh, the third one is don't fear failure. Okay. And the fourth one is um, 
the fourth one is and it's it's i think it's um it was either it was either warren buffett or it was ogilvy i think it was ogilvy the, the big advertiser who said um none of us and this is le- again less of an instruction more of a kind of principle of behavior um none of us is smarter than all of us okay so that idea so those would be my kind of four things um I like that. that 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 that's what I put out there. Um, oh, I, I could go back to. There's a guy on Twitter called Satnam Sangera. He's a he's a he's a journalist for the Times, and he writes in the business section. But he writes he writes about some of the vagaries of work that get people scratching their head. So he's he's got an interesting take on life. He's definitely worth following. Uh, oh, there's two more. So keep going, and I'll come back to you. No, that's the, fine. That's okay. fine. Um, <laughs> So I guess I've got two more questions and we kind of come into the end. Um, this one can be as, as light or as deep as you want to get with it. Yeah. But do you even like yourself? Um, so I've learned to. I've learned to. Um, I, 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 I'm really proud of what I do. I'm really proud of my family. Um, I believe that when I approach situations at work and challenges like that, then I'm, I always do it with the right frame of mind. So, so yes, I do. Um, there are bits that I'm frustrated about, um, and that's probably for a longer, much more complicated, probably slightly darker <laughs> podcast. But um, so the short answer is yes, I do. Um, but I've had to learn to. That that's probably the the important thing. That, that had to learn to. Okay, and. I guess kind of what three pieces of tips maybe would you give to someone who's thinking of kind of jumping into kind of the, the consultancy world? Um, that is a very good question as well. So, um, so again, it, it's something that I, I, I've told a number of people. One of the best things about consultancy is its variety and its diversity one of the worst things about consultancy is its variety and its diversity. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a being comfortable with some of the vagaries that come with professional services um, is, is something you need to, to work through. So my bit of advice would be if you're thinking about it, find some people in your network who've worked in consultancy and ask them pointed difficult questions about it <laughs> so you really get to understand what it's like. Um, because as well as being one of the greatest roles you can do, it can be immensely frustrating as well. That's kind of my, my reflections on 12 years of doing it. Okay, okay. Sound advice, sound advice. So I guess kind of coming full circle now and, and you know, at the start of the kind of, of the, the show, I asked you to pick out some, um, some numbers. So these yes. numbers tally up to a random list of, um, items and the goal is really simple you're on a yeah. desert island and what do you do with these items so yeah. your items yeah. simon are um some eyeliner <laughs> yeah um so you've got eyeliner you've got a blouse <laughs> yeah <laughs> um some sunglasses yeah and a spoon okay so sunglasses important for shielding your eyes from uv on a desert island you could use the eyeliner to, well, you could kind of pull the, the, the blouse apart and write SOS 
on the blouse with the eyeliner and put that up as a flag so people could see it. And you could use the spoon, I think, if it was hot enough to kind of, I don't know, heat the salt water so you could actually drink. Ah. Essentially, you've got you've got some stuff that could help you survive a few days. Um, or you could dig a very you could dig a deep tunnel very slowly with a very small spoon. So those are yeah. So there's some stuff there. Might help, <laughs> I feel, I feel help like get I'm, you by on a desert island. I feel like we've just had a conversation with um, yeah, Bear Grylls. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess I guess kind of going back to kind of what we said at the beginning, and, and you know. We know we never really ever stop growing and developing. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. if I was to ask you a question now, Simon, what do you want to be when you grow up? What, what would you up, say? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I I always want to be someone who helps other people um, in whatever kind of field or frame that takes um it's a bit of a cop-out answer but i can't actually think of a better one um other than a chef i'd love to be a chef when i grow up okay awesome the the slightly more realistic one is probably the former (laughs) fair enough fair enough so simon where can people find out a little bit more about what's going on and what you're Um, up to so uh i'm on linkedin simon williams um I, um, I'll be honest, I'm still getting to grips with Twitter as a user. So I, as I said, I'm, I'm more of a lurker than anything else. Um, my company, a company called PA Consulting, um, fascinating organization, um, paconsulting.com, uh, technology innovation management consultancy firm, doing some really interesting stuff, um, often outside the traditional realms of management consultancy. Um, so have a look at the website, some good corporate videos there um and yeah that's me awesome well shout out to pa consultant and simon it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very very much thank you Daphne. it's been a pleasure cheers enjoy the rest of the evening simon yeah you too bye bye